and uh, it doesn't really bother me that much anymore, but if I don't have to wear it, I'm not going to wear it. Um, at any rate, I appreciate most of you being pretty cooperative and moving up here towards the front as we try to uh, improve our sound quality here. And if you feel a little bit put out by that, I'm, I'm glad you got out of your comfort zone, but uh, just know that as we were working out the kinks there and trying to get the volume level right, we had that squeal and I kind of leaned back like this and Abby said, stop it, you're being dramatic. And I don't know if that's the kindergarten teacher in her or not, but I, I've been a little put out myself. Uh, at any rate, last week Myron made a really powerful point, I thought. He said that this is your 1A book and this is your 1B book because so much in here comes from in here. And with that in mind, I want us to begin this evening by singing another song, 538. This is a familiar hymn to all of us. I didn't even put it on the slides because I want you to get out your book. We're going to revisit this song as we go through this lesson because it so perfectly relates to the hope we're talking about tonight. 538, my hope is built on nothing less. We're going to sing all four verses of this song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but only lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His oath, his covenant, his blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, Ethan is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. I hope you paid close attention to the words of that song. I know it's familiar to us, and as we've probably realized by now, that familiarity can cause us to just sing things by rote and not really pay attention to the message that we're conveying. Now, we're going to revisit this in just a few minutes as I go through our lesson this evening, so you might keep that handy if you need to refer to it again for reference. 
But we're talking tonight about hope. And I think hope is a particularly interesting word in the context of all of these word studies we've gone through. Because hope is not a word that's one of these theological jargon terms, the way that we're going to see some of these going forward, you know, justification, propitiation. If you've looked at the table of contents, words like that are coming. Hope isn't like that. Hope isn't like the word we looked at together the last time, a few weeks ago, resurrection, one where we might have to clear out some baggage of misunderstanding to really understand what it is that Scripture is trying to convey. Hope's a common word. We probably use it every day. It's a word that we use in just our casual conversations. But that familiarity with this word can cause us to miss the great power that lies in Christian hope. Because the way that we use it typically, just, just flippantly, is a pale reflection of the way that it's used in Scripture. Our English word hope is defined, this is the dictionary, this is Webster's definition for the verb, to want something to happen or to be true. To want something to happen or to be true. That's when it's used as a verb. When it's used as a noun, it's a desire for a certain thing to happen. In other words, the way we typically use hope, it's wishful thinking. It might be a big wish or a small wish. It might be something that's relatively mundane and easy for us to accomplish, or it might be a, a great big dream that we have. But the point is, the way we typically use hope in our everyday speech, it's not something that we have any expectation that it will happen. It's something we wish would happen. I hope the Astros win tonight. I hope I get that promotion at work. I hope I get a raise I hope we have pizza for lunch. Whatever it may be, we just use hope as a stand-in for something we, we wish would happen. That's not the way Scripture uses hope. The Hebrew terms that are most commonly translated as hope, they come from two roots. One is kaval, the other is yalkal. Both of them can be translated and are translated as to wait or to hope. And the way that they're translated depends entirely upon context. Uh, they decide to render them depending on the way they're used there in the particular uh, verses. The difference between these is not that there's no waiting. Hope involves waiting. We're going to see that later. But the difference has to do with confidence, with expectation. If there's confidence in your waiting, if you have a positive, an optimistic outlook, well, that's hope. And that's why they translate it that way instead of merely waiting. When we get to the New Testament, the Greek term, the noun for hope is elpis. Uh, the verb is elpizo, and I have the whole definition. This is from uh, Donker's Concise Dictionary there on the slide for you. You can read that. But in nearly every case this word is used in the New Testament, building on that Hebrew usage, it conveys expectation, anticipation of a good outcome. We're confident that something good is going to happen here. And you'll notice there the very last phrase, 
It's never, never used for wishful thinking. That comes straight out of the Greek dictionary. The way we use hope in English, wishful thinking, that's never used of hope in the New Testament. In particular, the object of hope in Scripture is frequently the promises of God. Because we're hoping in his promises, that leads naturally to this joy, this expectation that we have. We know that he's going to fulfill them. So the fundamental meaning of the words for hope bring to light a few points, I think, worth considering. We want to note just three this evening. First of all, hope always entails waiting. Hope always entails waiting. But not all waiting is done in hope. You can wait around and not be very hopeful, but if you're hopeful, you're waiting. We might think of it uh, this way. If you're, you're flying standby, for instance, you're waiting. <laughs> you might be waiting a long time, but you're not hoping, at least not in the biblical sense, you're hoping in our wishful thinking sense, hopeful that I can get on that next flight. But it's the guy that has the ticket, the reserved seat. He has hope because he's confident in that expectation that he's going to get on the plane. Otherwise, you're just waiting around. That distinction is key in how we translate the Hebrew words. Remember, because to wait and to hope, same word, it's all about the outlook that we have. And I think when we understand that, we can see how faith and hope are two terms that are related to one another, but they're different. They have different shades of meaning, or, or we shouldn't confuse those two things. We all know what the Hebrews writer says, chapter 11, verse 1. You could probably quote it to me. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Our faith, and faith, remember, is, is trust in God. Our trust in God is grounded in the hope we have in him. That is, we know we can trust him because we're confident he's going to do what he said he's going to do. We have this expectation that God's going to keep his word. That's how those two things are related. Faith has work to do today. Hope helps to bolster faith. It helps to encourage it and push it on, confident that it's going to be rewarded in the future. Faith takes God at his word and accepts the gift of his promise. Hope confidently expects the fulfillment of that promise. God's going to do what he said. The key is there's always this future dimension to hope, waiting. I think about the Israelites down in Egyptian bondage. For generation after generation, hundreds of years, they're forced to do menial work in intolerably cruel circumstances. They groaned in their labor. They cried out to God, longing for deliverance. What was it that sustained them during all those long years of waiting? It was hope. It was confidence in the God who had made his promise to their fathers. They knew he'd acted before and that one day he'd act again. Their hope was based on that faithfulness of God. Now, even after they came up out of Egypt, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 long years at the border of the promised land. They had to wait. 
And they had to wait until they could come to that point of trusting God because of that hope rather than trusting in themselves, seeing their own weakness instead of seeing his strength. What was it that sustained them in the wilderness? Hope. Hope that God one day would fulfill his promise. And of course, ultimately, he did. He was faithful to his word and he gave them that land. That brings us to a second point. The object of hope determines the quality of that hope. To go back to that plane example I used a little bit ago, that is probably not the greatest object of hope that there is. Your flight might get delayed because of inclement weather. You might have an experience like Abby and I had once where we actually had that reservation. We should have had that confidence, but one flight had been delayed because of bad weather and we supposedly had a guaranteed seat on the next flight and we get there and no, they oversold it. You can't get on. That's a flimsy place to put your hope. It was misplaced. We shouldn't have our confidence there. I hope that the Astros win the World Series. In 2019, that's a hope that's very realistic. I can have faith that they're going to accomplish that. In 2013, that required the faith to move a mountain because that was just not going to happen with a team that lost 113 games or whatever it was that they lost. There's some people in this world who live with no hope. Paul talks about them in Ephesians chapter 2. He's reminding those in Ephesus Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul says there are some people alienated from God. Those people are without hope. And we might think that there are a lot of people in the world who are like that. And in the sense of those who are without God, that's true. But I'm not so sure that there are that many people who live with no hope because that's a dismal way to live. The question is where they place their hopes. See, the greater problem than those who live with no hope is those who live with false hope. And there are far more people who live with false hope than those who live with no hope. We can find them in our own community. And that's much more insidious than having no hope. If you find someone who truly has no hope, like these Gentiles Paul talked about, and somehow you can present them with the true hope, the Christian hope, well, then there's a possibility that they might be persuaded. They might have that vacuum, that void, where there is no hope filled with that true hope. But if you encounter someone who has a false hope, you got a lot harder job on your hands because the first thing they have to do is give up that false hope. They have to admit that they were wrong. Their hope was misplaced. They have to radically alter their worldview and that is an extremely difficult thing to get people to do. You see, ultimately, false hope is rooted in misplaced self-confidence. We can talk about any number of aspects of false hope and the things that people put their faith in, but fundamentally it comes down to the fact we trust ourselves rather than trusting in God's promises. That can be so 
tempting to us. I'm intelligent enough to do it on my own. I'm wealthy enough to be able to do it on my own. I'm advanced enough in my career. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything else. I might be waiting, but what I'm waiting is on me to accomplish everything that needs to be accomplished. I'm just waiting on myself to go out and do it. We're waiting with that false hope in all of my power and what I can accomplish. I was reflecting on the song this week. Here we get back to the song. Now, we probably recognize the chorus. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That comes straight out of the parable of the two builders. The conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. We might uh, know it better as the wise man. That's the song we sing when we're kids. The wise man built his house upon the rock. That's exactly where this comes from. The wise man who built on the rock versus the foolish man who built on the sand. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There's that firm foundation, that rock that we build on. But what about that next line? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. You ever thought about that? Did you think about that when we sang it a few minutes ago, what that means? I confess to you, I didn't think about that line ever until this week. I got the gist of this song. Yeah, our hope is placed in Christ. And yeah, it's about building on the rock versus building on the sand. That's the, that's the gist of the song. But I never thought about that particular line. And yet it's in the first verse. Every time we sing this song, we sing that line. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Frame can have a lot of meanings in English. A frame is something that you place a picture inside. Uh, a frame is a, a state of mind or a way of looking at things. We use frame as a verb when we talk about uh, pinning a, a crime on someone that they didn't commit. And I actually looked up to see if I could find any information about what the author meant, and there's no consensus. So we're left somewhat to our own devices here. But I can tell you in thinking about this, in context of building on the rock versus the sand, I think we're talking here about a structure, like you frame a house. Like you frame a building. We might have a beautiful building of our own. It might have a strong frame. It might be made of iron and brick. And it might have a, a beautiful edifice. And we're tempted to hope in that. Because that's everything that I built. Everything that I have. Everything that I am. But if that building, no matter how sweet the frame isn't built on that rock, I dare not trust in that because that's a false hope. It's misplaced. Doesn't matter how great the frame is. And that leads us closely related to a third and, and final point. And that is that Christian hope isn't just a maybe, that wishful thinking, I hope this is going to happen. It's a confident expectation. As the song says, our hope is built on Jesus. And if, at second point, if the object of our hope determines the quality of our hope, well, you can't get anything better than that. There's nothing better than to hope in Jesus, and that's why it's certain, that's why it's confident, that's why it's joyful. The Christian hope isn't just pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, it's assurance, blessed assurance, as we sang about a few moments ago. And that's precisely because it's not built on the shifting sand. 
We don't hope in ourselves in the weak, flimsy, building material that we are. We trust in a God who's faithful to keep his promises. I think of another song that we sing, and this one comes straight out of Scripture, Lamentations chapter 3. You know this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, therefore what? Yeah, I see some of you mouthing it. Therefore, I will hope in him. Our hope is confident because it's rooted in God, not us. Why will I hope in him? Because his steadfast love never ceases. Because his mercies never come to an end. That steadfast love, that's his hesed, that word we've talked about a couple of times lately. God's covenant faithfulness, the fact that even if we turn our backs on God, he never turns his back on us. He's continually there with his presence, working for us, willing the good for us. And that is what our hope is based upon. After the resurrection, or I should say, after Jesus' death, before the resurrection, the hopes of the disciples were shattered. You remember in Luke chapter 24, there's the two fellows walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus comes up to them. They're there talking and obviously somber and just paraphrasing what happens there. Jesus comes up to them and he says, what, what's wrong, guys? Why are you so down? And they say to him, have you been living under a rock? Are you the only guy in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's happened these last few days? And they start to tell him about Jesus' death and his burial. And they say, quote, we hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They misunderstood God's plan. And so when their expectations were dashed, they lost hope. That was false hope. It was ultimately hope in themselves and what they thought God was going to be doing. But the resurrection restored their hope with new joy, with new power. And that's where our hope lies. God has already won the victory. And that takes us back to what we talked about with resurrection a few weeks ago. But the point is, after his resurrection, hope in the New Testament centers around that. How Jesus' resurrection is proof we have the confidence that God is going to raise us from the dead. You remember in Acts chapter 23, Paul's on trial there before the Sanhedrin, and when he perceives that some are Pharisees and some are Sadducees, he said, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and it's because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm here on trial today. Or we could think about what was read in our text a few moments ago from Romans chapter 8. Paul writes there that, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. That hope, that confidence that God is going to raise us from the dead just as he raised Jesus is why we can continue to trust God even in the midst of our trials. That's what these middle two verses of this song talk about. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Even when I can't see him, I still trust in him. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. 
In the middle of the storm, when all of the difficulties of life are swirling about, I continue to hold on to him. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. In other words, I know he's faithful to keep his promises. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. So because I know God's faithful, even when everything else is in shambles, I'm going to hold on to him because he's my only hope. Ultimately, our hope is rooted in the certainty that God has raised Jesus from the dead. That's our source of hope. And not only has Jesus been raised, but one day he's coming back. We're going to be raised too. That last verse, when he shall come with trumpet sound. Not if, there's the confidence, when he shall come with trumpet sound. I can stand before God then because he paid my debt, dressed in his righteousness alone. My sins aren't counted to me, but his righteousness is, and I'm faultless to stand before the throne. I trust in him instead of trusting in myself. Jesus is indeed our only hope. That should encourage us to place our hope in him and not in ourselves. We wait. We wait for him to come back. But we wait not with wishful thinking. Man, I hope the Lord comes back. No, we wait confident. One day he's coming back. And I can't wait. But of course, if you're not in a right relationship with him, then you don't have that hope. You ought not look forward to that prospect with gladness, with joy, with anticipation, but with dread. And so based on the certainty that Jesus is coming back and while he'll raise the righteous to eternal life, he'll raise the wicked to judgment. You need to make sure that your life is right with God this evening. If there are any changes you need to make to be in that right relationship with him, to have that eternal hope, you have the opportunity to make your need known while we stand and while we sing. Just as